And night and day they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Amen. What a joy it is, church, to have this time together as an offering of the first fruits of our week to gather and fellowship and to pray. Very blessed by the words of Pastor Rob this morning, my own soul, his prayer, and thankful to sing with you, saints, and to worship our good God together. Um, if you're new or visiting, my name is Joshua Kirstein, privileged to be the preaching pastor here at Disciples Church. Um, we're in our 135th year of gospel ministry here in Bakersfield, California, the First Baptist Church of Bakersfield. It's a joy to have you with us on this Sunday morning and to be growing with us and seeking the Lord in his truths. Pray that God would be mightily at work in your life, your time spent with us this morning. We're joyful and committed to preach through God's word faithfully to have reformed from a more modern style of topical preaching, to really be faithful to um, just the, the regular and committed exposition of God's Word. We're enjoying in this season in the life of our church the preaching of the Gospel of Luke. So if you'll grab that, uh, if you grab your Bibles with me this morning and turn to Luke's Gospel, as you do, I'd like to read a couple uh, introductory passages from the Old Testament that set the tone for today's sermon, which I've entitled Faithful Servants. In Samuel's farewell address, we read these words in his closing remarks. 1 Samuel 12, 24, Only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Solomon says in Proverbs 3, 3, Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. It is in Luke chapter 3 where we find ourselves today uh, of a sharp focus on the few words we find in verse 19 through 21. We, it's here we read about the faithfulness of John the Baptist and of Jesus. It is here that Luke wraps up his account of John's public ministry and preaching and turns to begin his account of Jesus' public ministry. In many ways, it is in this text, church, that we witness in Luke's account the passing of the baton from the forerunner to the Christ. The forerunner has faithfully pointed many to Christ, spread the word to preach faithfully of repentance for the kingdom of God, is at hand, and at hand it surely is, for Christ is on the scene. Before we get to the amazing ministry and testimony of Jesus, consider with me this morning, church, the circumstances of John the Baptist's faithfulness to stand for truth 
and to call out sin. Our text begins at Luke chapter 3, 19 and 20. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added to this, to them all, that he locked up John in prison. What this account shows us is that John the Baptist was not only faithful to preach in the wilderness, the Jordan River, as we've studied already, church, but he's noted to have specifically rebuked the ruler of the area, Herod Antipas, who was the Tetrarch, as mentioned, the area ruler of Galilee in that, in that government at that time. Here we see that John rebukes him for a number of sinful offenses, and most notably his sinful marriage to Herodias. Now you might think, why was it of any importance to John that he found his way to go rebuke Herod directly? Maybe you might wonder, why was it any of his business who Herod decided to marry? And it is because John is a faithful prophet of the Lord a champion of God's law and God's truth. It's because John's faithfulness to God's truth is not compartmentalized, but thorough. He's committed to the things that honor the Lord, and that goes farther than just his preaching at the Jordan Riverside. Church, we need to see how this fact ministers to us today, because we often, if we're honest, can be prone to compartmentalize our faith and witness to the places maybe where we're most comfortable to the people who maybe don't threaten us. But the call of the Lord on us, the redeemed, is to be a light, to be a light of the gospel, to stand for truth and righteousness. And this must be something we do in all places and with all people. John provides a wonderful example, a faithful testimony. He doesn't bend. He doesn't cave. He doesn't pull punches. Because of Herod's great ability to make John's life miserable, which he has the power to do, which he does do in the end. No, John stands up. He rebukes Herod for marrying Herodias and for these other sins. Why is this marriage worthy of rebuke? Well, Herodias was his brother Philip's wife. That's why. Additionally, she was his niece. God's law is clear that to marry another while their spouse is still living is to commit adultery, punishable by death. John stood on the good command of the Lord to rebuke Herod and Herodias for their marriage, for she was still in a one-flesh union with Herod's half-brother, Herod Philip. Herod himself also noted to be also already in a one flesh union to another. But the offense is not just for this, as the, although that is grievous in and of itself to take lightly such a sacred act of the covenant of marriage. Not only were these two both still in one flesh unions and holy marriage with other people, but Herodias was married to a blood relative, which means Herod's half-brother, and so this then was a violation of another clear command of God. We see that command in Leviticus 18, 16 through 17, if you're unfamiliar with it. It says this, You shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, 
It is your brother's nakedness. You shall not uncover the nakedness of a woman and of her daughter, and you shall not take her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter to uncover her nakedness. They are relatives. It is depravity. The incestuous, depraved, covenant-breaking layers to this family's sinful entanglements is like that of the wicked modern-day soap operas, full of scandal, lust, and unfaithfulness. Herod's wickedness is such a long list of offenses. Notice with me in our text, church, that Luke doesn't even get into all these other things. He simply says that John rebuked him for all the evil things that Herod had done. What does it mean to rebuke? To rebuke is to confront error. It's to highlight what is wrong and point to what is right. Despite what our modern world says, which is to leave each to his own, that there's no absolute truth, there's no governing authority by which we must obey, wicked deceptions of a lost society under the devil, we must realize, church, that it is loving and right to point out the errors or sinful ways of another, to love them enough to point them to the truth, to call them away from the ledge of their destruction, to point them to the light, to call them out from the muck and the mire unto forgiveness, freedom, repentance, and righteousness. Many people struggle with the idea of calling out another person in their sin, but it's important that our fleshly reasoning doesn't overwhelm what God calls us to, that we love people well in truth. It is loving to practice righteous rebuke. That means rebuke that's true, rebuke that's righteous, not just you on a high horse picking out every little thing. Those who you love, you do this all the time. Parents, you do this for your children if you love them. Right? If one of my kids is caught mistreating their sibling, then they are worthy to be admonished, to be corrected. If I'm loving them, I don't wait. I don't ignore it. Right? If, I, if I'm acting and honoring to the Lord, then I'm going to fight my temptation to be lazy, to let it slide, or maybe be fearful of how it might affect our relationship. No, I engage them with correction. This is the loving thing to do for the, mis the one that is being mistreated, but also for the one doing the mistreating, caught up in sin. If, if one of these children shows a pattern of sin and no sign of real repentance, then the matter is brought forth in a more, more formal sit-down with the child. If that still doesn't go well, then Jennifer and I can begin a process of more serious correction, practices, and disciplines. If it still doesn't work, then we humbly invite wiser, older, mature brothers and sisters in Christ to maybe help us see something that we're not seeing in us, to invite the elders for counsel, for help. Why? Why do we do this? Why do we go to such lengths? Because it's not loving to leave people stuck in their sin. It's that simple. Now, many of you might be thinking, okay, all right, Pastor, I can get on board with that, with my kids, with my family maybe. But I don't know if I feel that I'm in the position to do that with just another adult or other people. That's their business. See with me that John is loving Herod and Herodias to, to rebuke them for their sin. 
He's loving and honoring God to fight for what is righteous. John's loving them to rebuke them because he's not leaving them in their lostness. He's efforting to call them and their influence to a road of righteousness. He's trying to lead them away from consequence and destruction. That's loving. Even those who say they don't like the idea of rebuking another in their sin because it's none of their business, you probably actually believe it is, given the right situation. We just need to learn to apply it better more often. How do I know this? Because if you saw another adult, bigger, stronger, picking on, harming, hurting a young child or a younger or smaller person, you would likely intervene righteously to defend that person that is defenseless, to speak up, to rebuke that person, to call them from their sinful action. God's word is clear that we're commanded to do this in love. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Church, the truths of God need to dwell in us richly, consistently, not in a compartmentalized way. Teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Hebrews 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Church, it's loving to do this often. How often is today called today? Every day, just in case you're not tracking. Pretty often, I would say. Listen to how Paul gives counsel regarding the practice of rebuke to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 25-26. And the Lord's servant should correct his opponents with gentleness. Right There is a gospel way to do this, not in the flesh of our sin, but with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Church, notice something with me. I'll repeat again in a moment. The responsibility of us is to call out sin and point to what is righteous, that that's a good and loving act. What the Lord ordains to be done with that is up to him and that person. Right? The fruit of that is not for us to sit there and waver and think and weigh. We are to just do what's righteous in these ways. Notice it says when someone comes to their senses, what that means is that by God's grace, they finally see the truth for truth. They see the lies or the deception in their thoughts or their actions. They no longer believe the lies. They no longer are caught up in the deception that's motivating them in sin. They're brought out of, you could say, their drunken stupor to be sober-minded over that given situation, to see it with new eyes. This is a great moment. Can I just say, Christian, often what this moment is is something that you admittedly were pretty probably dogmatic about being right about. And finally, by God's grace, he's given you new eyes for the situation. And what a wonderful testimony it is when we are able to humbly joyfully admit that. No longer making excuses or trying to soften the blow, but just joyful to see truth for truth, right? 
sadly, all too often, we're caught up in our own scorekeeping, our record. I don't want another one of these where I was wrong. have to admit it. Even that idea, thought, outplay is sinful. It's hard to hear rebuke. It is. Sometimes we really feel the ouch of it. But God's word is clear to say in Hebrews 12, 11, the moment, at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness in those who have been trained by it. I like to say to others, love me enough to not leave me where I'm at. Do you really believe that? Do you want that from those around you? You'll be blessed for it if you do. See with me that God-honoring, well-executed rebuke and its aim is to lead someone away from sin unto what is righteous, unto God-honoring fear and respect for what is genuine. Paul teaches Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.20, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. That's... That's about someone who's persisting in sin. They've really shut down calls to repentance and they're just continuing. Eventually, it's to be brought to the public eye. This person is languishing. They are persisting in sin, contrary to whatever thing they've told you about themselves. And it's to do a good work in the hearers that we would do business with these things. This is what John efforted to do for Herod. And those under his lead. The problem is Herod had no reverent fear for his sin. Instead, he used his power to get rid of the one who was exposing his sin. Back to today's text. Notice that Luke says in verse 20, to add to all of their wicked things Herod was guilty of, it says in verse 20, he locked up John in prison. John does the right and loving thing to rebuke Herod for his sin, and Herod makes John pay for it by using his authority to throw him in prison. The problem is the unjust treatment of John didn't end with just throwing him in prison. Scripture tells us that the wife, Herodias, held a grudge against John. She was very embittered by this whole thing. She was so offended and so bothered, consistently and ongoingly, John calling her out, exposing her sin, that she wanted John put to death. Look with me at Mark's gospel account for some of these details. We see in Mark's gospel, chapter 6, 17 through 20, for it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was righteous and a holy man, and he kept him safe when he guarded him. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. The man processes this confrontation different than the woman. The woman is very offended, and she lets it stew, and she lets her bitterness grow. And finally, Luke's gospel will tell us that she gets her opportunity to get to John. 
She leverages a very sinful and unsavory situation, debauchery and lustfulness and drunkenness, to get Herod to use his power to have John beheaded. Church, see with me just how much harm sin and selfishness brings. Undealt with bitterness, anger, and grudges. The things that we do, the, the, the ways we reason in a situation to be right and they're wrong, to justify our sin, to, to talk about it differently. It's not what you're saying that it is. It's something else. To protect our reputation. The things we'll do for those things can be outright wicked. The ultimate decision of Herod to have John imprisoned and later and ultimately killed is the opposite of what John's rebuke should have done for him. Rebuke that is grounded in truth and is aligned with God's good word and command is truly an act of love. And when it is received properly, although it might be hard to hear, it's received as love. It's received with gratefulness that leads to confession and repentance from sin, leads to honoring the Lord. The problem with our sin is that often we don't receive it this way. We quickly become defensive. We don't listen well. We have something to say. I want, you to see, I want you to hear this the way I see it. We don't respond properly with repentance and humility. Instead, we double down to defame, sometimes even remove the one who is the voice of the rebuke. This is sin's way of creating deception, to hide the truth, to cover it, to create a diversion, a bigger mess for people to be focused on or maybe in an effort to remove the testimony altogether. Now before we get on our high horse and say, man, what a wicked lady. Can I just point out, we have all done this. Have we not? When someone who knows us well, who knows the truth well, loves us to bring an accurate rebuke for actual sin, and in our flesh, we're not ready to hear it. So we point the finger back at them we bring up something that tries to put the spotlight on them. What about you? What about this? What about that? Worse, sometimes we're willing to just abandon the relationship altogether to try to avoid real accountability. This is why, church, it's important to be humble, to be slow to speak, and quick to listen when a trustworthy person brings rebuke. That's important, church, because we all are at war with our flesh and can turn quickly towards self-justification, being right in our own eyes, and even pursuing more sin to create diversion or false accusation or abandonment of our unity altogether. How are we caught up in these things? How are we letting the devil have a foothold on the body of Christ because we're letting division reign? Because we're not fighting for forgiveness. We're not asking those who would love us enough to tell us what we need to hear. What do I need to hear in this situation? That would slow my loud cry about that guy or, or what she's doing or them. What can I do to be a blessing to God? How can I honor the Lord in this? Let me focus on that. Church, think about it. This was David's gross double down in his sin back in the Old Testament. David laid with a married woman, Bathsheba. Instead of confessing and repenting of this gross sin, 
David had her husband killed in battle because he had the power to do it. To remove the outplay of the accusation or the consequences. In his mind, somehow, this was a consequence for the greater good. What a deception. It's essentially what Herod does to John the Baptist. He has him removed and imprisoned to shut his voice down. Eventually, has him beheaded to get him out of the way. So that Herod's sin is no longer called out. How gross is sin? How wicked and nasty can it be? So gross that if you don't like the truth that's coming out of another person's mouth, that you can be sinfully motivated to literally cut that person's head off. Church sin is nasty, potent, real, destructive, deceiving. This is why we must abide in Christ and heed the Holy Spirit's conviction and obey the words of God his word, walk accountably with the brethren of the church, humbly follow our shepherd's teaching and leading, for it's in seasons where we push those things off, where we get busy with temporary life, when we get stuck in our own head, that we are susceptible to great sin and folly. That we would be blessed by the provisions of the Lord, what it means to be his and adopted in his family, in his church. The power of the Spirit the reign of Christ over all things. Because our daily fight with sin is very real, we cannot afford to play light with it. Once again, I'm so very thankful personally for John's testimony. I've told you time and time again, John the Baptist is one of my favorite. A very limited testimony, a very short testimony, but a very potent testimony of faithfulness. His willingness to speak up and rebuke a feared leader, even though it cost him his freedom and ultimately his life, is a wonderful example of faithfulness. Just this morning, I heard the announcement of a pastor with his elders standing behind him that he was being threatened, threatened to lose his freedom, his pulpit, his ministry, because of his boldness to stand for God's truth in the public circles the atrocities of our common culture, and to not back down. I ask you, what if that longtime faithful pastor goes to jail for his rebuke of sin, and that church loses him as their shepherd? Was it worth it? Would some maybe reason maybe he would have been better served, we would have been better served, if he would have just tucked it in a little bit? He wouldn't be in jail right now. We would still have our beloved pastor Why not just keep your head down and stay out of it? I think the answer is because if we refuse to stand for the Lord and what is righteous in all situations, then why even pay any cost to stand at all? Are some more important than all whom God would ordain to save? No. We must be faithful in every situation to do and to say what honors the Lord. There's a saying, I mentioned it earlier, that I've been saying a lot in this last maybe months, years of my ministry in the last couple of decades. I can't help. I continue to circle back to it. I continue to meditate on its truths in my own lives, at my own crossroads. And the saying is simply this. Do what is righteous 
and trust the results to the Lord. What do I do? Do what is righteous and trust the results to the Lord. Even if the consequences are costly, it's not our job, Christian, to weigh what might happen. It's our job to do what is righteous and honor the Lord. Surely, if that reasoning was near John, someone might have convinced him, don't go pick a fight with Herod. Herod's wicked through and through. You will pay a great price for that. You're doing a great work out here. Keep it up. Don't go do that. To reason it, to think it through. So often, it is the faithful of God who experience the greatest suffering, who experience the shortest life. The faithful of God who have the opposite of what you would see is the good life. Their children are the ones who are sick or dying. They're the ones who are being killed or thrown in prison. They're the ones who are standing for righteousness and losing their jobs. Why? Why is it? Why is it that way? Doesn't it seem logical to our human reasoning that those who do good should have good? Only God really knows. We're not sovereign. We don't have a view over the littlest hill that's right in front of us. But he does. What we do know, according to Scripture, is it is so often that the suffering of God's saints makes the gospel its brightest. One thing for people to see the joy in you, Christian, when your life is good, when things are going well, doesn't really feel any different than the heathen next door. But when your life is in utter shambles, when you're losing good things, when, when you're going through great suffering and your joy is still stacked in the Lord, your hope is fixed in God, what an amazing testimony that is. I'm thankful for the humility of John to live faithfully his entire life for the name and fame of Jesus. I'm thankful for the boldness of John to speak truth to the crowds, even to the leaders who had the power to end his life. I'm thankful for the steadfastness of John to commit his days to the ministry God called him to. He lived a simple life. He lived a very obscure life until a certain moment of time. And then he took none of that for himself. It was all for the glory in the name of Christ. He must increase and I must decrease. And even in this, to be faithful to stand for truth, even at a great cost. As we turn now our attention from John the Baptist to Jesus, know that we're not quite done hearing about John's testimony. We're really done hearing his preaching, his teaching, his, these actions of rebuke that we've studied this morning. But we are going to see another testimony later in Luke 7, by which John sends some of his disciples to inquire of some things. And so we're going to see some interaction with him from prison uh, later in this gospel testimony before he's killed. Look with me now at verse 21, church. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Notice with me a couple of things we have here in this verse. First, that Jesus was not baptized privately. 
No, Jesus approaches the waters of the Jordan with the crowds. Clearly stated, he was baptized with these other folks. Realize in this that there was nothing set apart about him in the eyes of other men. He was just another guy approaching the waters that day. How do we know? Well, think about it. What we've studied so far in Luke's gospel, a very small crowd is aware that he is the Messiah. Very small. Think about it. Um, Zachariah and Elizabeth, Mary and Joseph, a couple no-name shepherds told of his birth. They shared the good news with a few people in Bethlehem, right? Later in the temple, weeks later at his dedication, Simeon, Elizabeth, we see some others interacting there in private ways. She shared some of that good news with a few there. He's a child. Later in his, in his early teens, we see an interaction between him and, and some of the teachers of the law, uh, their families and community. Church, the world doesn't know that this boy, now a man, is the promised one. His life for 30 years lived in relative obscurity. Why? Waiting just like John for God's time to go to work. The forerunner had to come, do what he's done. That has now happened. And so here is Jesus. The Messiah is finally ready to be identified in the public square. Notice that Luke speaks in a passive way. Now, when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized, this means Jesus was baptized by John before John was eventually arrested. So he's kind of accounting for what John's road kind of equaled with that whole situation. Now in these, in this verse, kind of circling back. So when these baptisms happened, let me talk about that account. The other gospel accounts actually note that John was hesitant to baptize Jesus. In this, John rightly acknowledges that he is the one who needs to be baptized by Jesus. Look, look at one of those accounts with me. Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 3, 13 through 15. When Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now. For thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John consented and listened to Jesus to do it. Jesus says it is fitting that this is done to fulfill all righteousness. And so John honors Jesus' instruction and carries out his baptism. Now, the big question that comes about, why was Jesus baptized? Think about that with me. John's baptism was unique, different than our baptism today. Our baptism in the New Covenant Church, commissioned to be done by Jesus himself, the ones we practice, the ones you've been part of, the ones you've seen, is a symbolism of one who joins Christ in death and is risen to new life, just as Christ rose from the dead and the power of Christ. It's an outward sign and telling of what God has already done to save someone. That's not what John's baptism was about. John's baptism was more linked to the old notes of, of ceremonial washing. John's message was, you sinful people need to be washed. You need to repent of your sin. His job was to make a way to stir the pot and get people ready for the salvation of Christ. 
Here's the question. Why was Jesus baptized? For he did not need to be washed, nor did he need to repent of sin. The answer, as far as we know it, is what Jesus says here to John. It is fitting to fulfill all righteousness. Meaning, it was God's command that John the Baptist baptize. This was the means of this time in, in, in all things, that it was righteous to participate in that baptism. Whatever God requires is righteous, is righteous. In this, Jesus, if we think about it, did a lot of things in his life and ministry that he did not need to do for himself, but he did it because it was honoring to the, to the rules of the day, the commands of the Lord, to the example he set for those around him. Consider with me John's powerful testimony as we read it in John's Gospel, John the Apostle's Gospel, chapter 1, 29 through 34. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Quickly, in case you're lost in that sentence, John is born before Jesus. So Jesus comes about after. But John also understands that Jesus is the Son of God, eternal, who exists far before John. John understands that theology, that doctrine correct. That's what he's stating. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. What that says is that these guys didn't really grow up necessarily together. It sounds like John made his way to the wilderness, whatever paths they didn't really have. So how does John know? Well, the Spirit's at work in John, so this is how he knows. But he's testifying about how these things came about. Listen in verse 32. John bore witness. I saw the Spirit. Nope. I got ahead of myself. Let's go back to 31. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water. One of the reasons, one of the points of John's ministry was the command of the Lord to baptize with water. What is one of those reasons that that ceremony was to happen by John? That he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, John was told that it's, it was at this baptismal ceremony that he would witness the visual descent of the Holy Spirit on the one who is the Messiah, on the one who would take up baptism with the Holy Spirit. And in verse 34, what does he say? And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. See with me that God made it clear to John that he should baptize with water and that at this occasion, in God's perfect time, John would witness the Spirit's descent and remaining on the one who would go forth with a better baptism. A baptism 
of and with the power and presence of the Holy Spirit that brings about in the elect and the saved faith into Christ unto eternal salvation. Understand with me that Jesus was not baptized for any reason related to cleansing or repentance of sin. For he had no sin and therefore needed no cleansing or repentance. Some other writings outside the canon of Holy Scripture conjecture that this is why he did this. That's wrong. That's, we want Scripture to interpret Scripture to inform us of these things. They'll say he, the baptism was to get him finally ready to do his ministry. Right? Wrong. The, the baptism that Jesus participated in for John was God's providential moment where God would go public about Jesus. We're going to witness that amazing moment next week. I'd, I'd written it to be included in this week's sermon. That was my thought and intention. And as the days went on in my preparation and prayer, I started to realize I'm writing two sermons here. So thank you, Lord, that there's discernment. We'd be here till noon uh, and beyond. If I, so next week's special service has that very amazing text to study. I'm looking forward to that with you. See with me, church, the changing of the guard from a baptism of water of John pointing people to the need for repentance, the need for salvation, to the baptizing of God who gives the Holy Spirit, who gives new birth and saving faith for salvation to his people in his perfect time. Praise be to God. Amen. In the end, this is where we are given the why Jesus participated in John's baptism. And frankly, I'll just say it's enough. There's many things that God does or ordains that I don't need to know why. I don't need to have all the answers. I can walk by faith and trust him. I don't need to reason or guess or conjecture and explain. Here's my explanation. Jesus said it was the right thing for him to do, and so he did it. God ordained that this was the place where this was going to go down, and so it was. Later in Luke 20, 1 through 18, that's way down our road in our journey through Luke, you guys, we'll read that the priest tried to trap Jesus into saying by what authority he was baptized. Basically, Jesus says, I will not tell you by what authority I do these things. Mainly because he, he just there's parts of him that it wasn't time to be known for. I like the fact that we too just need to trust the Almighty's authority to rule and reign as he sees fit. Amen? One of the things that also is worth noting here is that Jesus' actual baptism, notice this with me, church, underwater, is really not the focus of this whole thing. And there's no details given about it. It just says that it happened. It's really all about what happens as he comes out of the water that is the high and glorious focus of this moment. Again, the focus of our sermon next week. In transition, though, there is something noted here that is worthy of us to slow down this morning and spend time with. Look at, look at it with me. The second part of verse 21, Jesus also had been baptized, that's all it says, and was praying. Notice with me the spiritual discipline 
to pray is faithfully modeled by Jesus. This is the first place we see him do this, but it is surely not the last. Why? Because Jesus is faithful to pray to the Father. To give you just a quick sample, I mean, we could be here all morning. Let me give you a dozen. Just a, a, Jesus is praying here at, this, at his baptism, during his first preaching tour, before choosing the 12 disciples, before feeding the 5,000, after feeding the 5,000, before feeding the 4,000, he prays, before Peter's confession of him as the Christ, he's praying at his transfiguration. At, for some children who had been brought to him, he's praying. After the return of the 70, he's praying. Before Lazarus is raised by him from the dead, he's praying. As he faced the reality of the cross as it drew near, at the Last Supper, he, he's noted to be praying for Peter, famously in Gethsemane, on the cross, with the disciples as he encountered them on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection in the famous ascension to the right hand of the Father, and maybe supremely or most noteworthy is Jesus' prayer to the Father in the John 17, by which we are given amazing insights into what he actually prays. Not just the note that he spent time in prayer, but what Jesus is actually saying to the Father, a high and glorious part of all of Holy Scripture, how much ministry it has, how much doctrine it has, rich and rich and rich it is. John 17, the high priestly prayer. Church, Jesus was passionately devoted to talking to his Father in prayer. We are told to pray all the time. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. That's a lot of prayer. Romans 12, 12, be consistent in prayer. Why is there so much emphasis in God's word to pray all the time? I would say because when you finally have access to the one true, almighty, all-glorious, all-satisfying, all-powerful God that I've been separated from my whole life because of my sin, now reconciled to, why would I not want to walk and talk with him all the time? Now here's the thing. I know many Christians, including myself, through many seasons of our faith and life, where we are genuine to say, I'm just struggling with having any kind of consistency in my prayer life. Christian, I don't have to describe for you that feeling where you realize, has it been hours? Has it been days? I think one of the reasons why we often get tripped up in discovering a rhythm of a more consistent prayer life is because we really think of prayer in too specific of one particular way we are to pray. And that is prayer closet prayer. When Jesus teaches the disciples how to pray, he speaks of not doing it for show, like those who are sinfully doing it for man's attention, but to enjoy privacy with the Lord, intimacy with God. He says to go in the closet, close the door. Turn off the noise. Be with the Lord, right? So it's, it's a special, specific way that is an important part of our, of our days, of our disciplines, of our time just to be alone with the Lord. Just like your marriage, you need time to turn off the noise and just be together. Your best friend, you, the things that you love the most, so it's, it's hard to enjoy those things when you're just trying to race through it all. So that is good and needed. 
But the pray all the time, the pray unceasing prayer, can't be that, right? I would never do anything in public if I prayed all the time only in my prayer closet. That closet would start to really stink, right? No, the all the time prayer is, is a more informal prayer. It's a walking and talking with God kind of prayer, right? Think about it with me. What, what would your life look like if you really were in tune with the fact that God is always with you? Every little step of the way, every little thought, every word from your mouth, every crossroad you face, every decision in your day. And if I walked with him in prayer more, how much more would I then honor him in those things? For I believe that much of our struggle with sin is in our ability to compartmentalize the Lord from our lives. And so he gets out of view, and so I get busy with all this. I feel guilty about this strained relationship because I'm so unfaithful to it. Christian, it's just a regular walk and talk with him in all of the little details of life. Why is that okay? Because the Lord already knows the details. He knows the details of what you're thinking and what's behind it better than you know how to process it. And so there's no reason why we're not walking with him, talking with him in all of it. Church, I hope you pray through the middle of service all the way through. Not out loud to be a distraction, but to the Lord who hears you. Pray for you, pray for the hearers, to pray for me, to pray for the preaching that's happening around the world. There's often times in the middle of my sermon I'm praying for you, sometimes by name. Are those prayers elaborate? Do I dial the Lord up and then have these really eloquent things I say and then hang up the phone? No, I would be all over the place in my sermon if I did that. But the Spirit knows. The Word tells us that the Spirit fills in the gaps for the stuff that I don't even know how to even say well. And we get so worked on, oh, I don't know how good of a prayer I am. I'm worth, worth thinking about this completely disconnected from the Lord. It is a blessing. It is a gift. It is a wonderful thing. I, I would love to see us just continue to find ways to just pray more. I, I, I've tried to practice that just in sitting with you, walking with you, driving, with, just to go to prayer. We, we don't have to like, hey, everyone, we're going to pray now. And then we go back to living. And you just, we're right in the middle of conversation. Just, Lord, just thank you for this. Just really praying over it. And just right there. And it's just like, yeah, God is in the middle of this conversation, isn't he? That's great. Love that. While formal prayer is good, we must learn to be more and more often in just talking with the Lord along the way. We think about the formal prayers of our days, right? I can probably list them. I'll tell you the good, I would tell you the places that you're good at praying because they're probably the religious practiced ways that we're all good at praying. Probably pretty good at praying before a meal. Probably good at praying for the kids before they go to sleep. Probably good at saying a prayer before the big game. We had a lot of prayers said today. Probably a lot of prayers that say before, before the big test or before the big event. Before travel, we like to pray, don't we? And definitely in emergencies, when, when life gets sticky and hard. I often think that many times the Lord ordains that life gets sticky and hard for no other reason 
than to have more of our attention. And that that is his mercy on you to make life a little harder that you would walk a little closer with him. Think about that. God throwing Jonah over the rail of that ship into the raging sea, into the belly of a fish. What a nightmare. And yet what a gift of the Lord. Why? Because it was in those means that Jonah circled back to God and enjoyed and reconnected. It is God's mercy to not leave us busy, but to shake us and awaken us back to the greatest thing he could ever give us, himself. Think about what you have in the gospel in that you have unhindered access to the living God. Think about the fact that the all-knowing, all-powerful, all-glorious God is fully focused on you and knows every bit of everything about you. More than you know about yourself. He's not busy. You don't have to plea with him for his attention. I've often tried to remind you, Scripture tells us that the Lord is the one who holds all things together. That means he didn't spin up this creation and turn it loose and then sit back and see what happens. It means the very chair that you're sitting on works as a chair because he's actively holding it together. That gravity is not keeping you from floating to death because he's actively at work. Your brain to even have the thought or the wonder, is he near or is he busy, the ability to think that thought is the presence of the holy and sovereign God to make your brain work. To have the words come out of your mouth is his providential hand that the jaw moves correctly, the tongue goes in and out, the air moves through, the vocal cords are operating. Christian, guest, God is more present in your life than you know how to give him credit. You don't need to beg for his attention. Call him near. We are the ones that need to be more attentive and present, right? Uh, for years, I would, in a lot of our reformation, I would say this, this thing that we, this habit we have, Lord, will you just draw near this place? Will you just go to work in these people in this time? And I just, <laughs> he's here. We don't have to invite him. He's at work. Those are, those are, generational practice. He's here. God, thank you for being here. What I started trying to teach our church to do is that we would say, Lord, help me to be here. And not focused on what's happening in 20 minutes or what's going on at home or why I think the guy down the road doesn't like me or whatever else is going on, that you would be present. Think about who God is, what he's able to do. The access you have, the relationship you have with him because of Christ. Don't think of Jesus as some foregone, came, did his job, rose, chilling with the Father, mission accomplished. No, no. Jesus is our active and ongoing mediator. He's the one connecting the call every time you pray. The Lord is at work, church. He loves us and is present. I mean, we pray more than we do 
May we follow the Lord's example to be faithful in our prayer life. I said the first hour, I say it to you. If you just take some, took some simple steps in enjoying a more regular prayer walk with the Lord this year, 2024 might be one of the raddest years you ever have. Having nothing to do with nothing else. You're just learning to enjoy the walk with the Lord all the more. We should pray all the time because God is all-powerful. Jeremiah 32, 27, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Matthew 19, 26, Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What a blessing it is to get to pray. To get to trust, to get to bring every little thing to him. Nothing's too trivial. I told first hour about a very humbling moment in my faith life when I was a teenager. I was with my youth group on a trip, and one of our youth vans broke down. I remember the street we were on, um, right there on the side of the street, uh, in a downtown area, and people are getting ice cream hanging out back and forth, and we needed to get this thing fixed. We needed to keep going. I was one of the leaders in our group. And I remember a couple of my peers huddled up to pray over what was broken about the motor. The Lord would bless us to allow us to have it fixed, to get it running so we could go. And I remember very ignorantly, very wrongly thinking, yeah, quit, quit being holy rollers over there. Let, let's just get, who's the guy right here who knows how to fix a motor? And my, all, all my attention was on the manual, what, what we would do. Thinking somehow that praying about that was a waste of time. I remember my judgment for them. And still to this day, 35 whatever years later, I still remember it clear as day. Blessed by their example, needing to be ministered to by my peers to grow in an embrace of bringing all things to the Lord and knowing that whatever is impossible for us is possible for him. The Lord wants to make that car fly home. He could have done it. My hope is that we're growing, just taking steps, whatever that next step is for you, to become people who are faithful to pray. My hope is that we too are willing to stand for God's truths in the face of great persecution and loss, like John models for us today. My hope is that we would obey God's commands and righteousness, even when maybe that doesn't make sense to us or isn't necessarily what our flesh wants. As Jesus modeled in being baptized. Why, why do we do this? Why would we be more faithful in these things? Because we're no longer our own church. I got to see my salvation right. I'm now a servant of Christ. To see rightly and fully that in Christ, I'm saved. I'm set free from my sin. But that my life in Christ is no longer with me at the helm. That I'm now a servant of him. He's the Lord. And I'm the servant. And it's my joy to live this life for him. To do it his way. To put away my dreams. To be willing to shut down the things that I want it to be. To live my life for Christ. 
Paul said it so well, I have been crucified with Christ. Me in charge died when I was saved with Christ. I was crucified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Galatians 2.20. That's the why. Because I belong to him. I'm a servant. How? How do we do this? How do we become more and more faithful in these things and at life's crossroads? Christian, you have to realize that any faithfulness in you is not because of you. It's not something you grow and produce or churn up or will on your own. It's not a byproduct of you. It's a byproduct of the Holy Spirit in you. Therefore, you must abide in Christ, rest in Christ, cling to the vine, and He will produce the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We must heed the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives at those crossroads and do what is righteous and do what, what, what He says is good and right and not fold to not bow, to not heed the desires of my flesh or, or what might please man around me or keep, keep my reputation in a certain pocket. To be done with pursuing temporary treasures. Church, we will not be faithful by our own determination and will. To help us really take this truth home this morning, look with me at 2 Timothy 2, 8-13 quickly. These words really blessed me. I want you to see how these words serve us well when we are languishing, when we're tired, when we're being tempted to heed the desires of our flesh instead of remaining faithful. 2 Timothy 2, 8-13 through 13, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Consider this with me for a moment. First, he says, remember Jesus, risen from the dead, there it is, Christian. You are victorious because Christ is victorious. We live the resurrected life, no longer bound to the flesh, because our Christ, our Savior, our Lord is resurrected. Amen? Remember Jesus. As preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, Paul, too, is imprisoned for his faithfulness to preach the gospel. Despite... The world saying, stop this. Do something different. He kept doing it, and he's thrown in jail again and again and again. But while Paul is suffering and bound, he says the word of God is not bound. This is an amazing and glorious truth. Isaiah 55, 11 basically says, when God's word is preached, his, he promises it will not return empty. It will accomplish all that God purposes it to. We must hold fast to that promise and speak God's truths faithfully. The power in the gospel and in God's truths are not in your delivery of them, Christian, but in the fact that it is God who purposes them to do exactly what he ordains them to do in the lives of the hearers. 
2 Timothy 2.10, Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul is saying, because God's word will do its work, I endure, I stay faithful, I remain. Why? For the sake of the elect. For the sake of all those that God's ordained to save. Those that I don't know who they are, but he does. That they would be eternally saved. Why do I not just tuck it in and stay focused on my own stuff? Why would I keep making disciples? Why would I keep preaching the gospel? Why would we keep sending missionaries? Because God's not done saving our family, church. For the sake of all those that he's ordained to save. Is it worth it to stand faithfully for truth even if you lose your job? If you lose your friends or your family? If you lose credibility among man? If your reputation is completely smeared? If your freedoms are taken away? Is it worth it? Yes. Why? Because there are many who are lost and dead in sin who God will ordain to obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Is it worth it? Absolutely. No trophy, no vacation, no accomplishment of my kid gets anywhere near my brothers and sisters who will reign with Christ because we are faithful. Christian, the saying is trustworthy, meaning you can trust God's promises and the word. And what is that? What is that word? What is that saying? If we've died with him, we will also live with him. That's the promise. Those who are saved in Christ, now and forever live in Christ. Amen? Amen and amen. Nothing can take that away. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we remain faithful despite what we face, we will forever reign with Christ. Scripture says those whom he truly saves will endure, we will finish in faith. Sure, we can languish. Sure, we can struggle. We can have a lot of really bad breakdowns, but we will finish in faith. We will repent. Will the suffering we encounter be hard? Yes. Will the consequences sting? Yes. Will these days in this body be a great struggle along the way? Yes. Is it worth it? Yes. Why? Because I will forever reign with Christ. And forever is a lot longer than this life I'm going to live that fits right here. And I get that. And that's good news. I endure. We will reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. That means if I prove to not belong to Jesus, not really love Jesus, not really live for Christ, not really be saved by him, but I superficially participated in the church, right? Christ doesn't really know me, even though I did things, even though I gave, even though I was faithful. What that means is on that day of judgment, I don't have an advocate. You know, I don't know you. You played a part in a religion, but saving faith is not you. You weren't dead to self and living to Christ. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, here's the good news. He is faithful. For he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? It means even on the days where you're terrible, you're faithless, the days you fold, at the crossroads where you compromise, and the times where you lack faithfulness, the good news is God remains faithful. Because he cannot deny himself. What does that mean? God is faithful. God doesn't change. 
Nothing you're going to do is going to make him say, hey, new plan. Change my mind. No. God's unchanging. He is faithful. He is faithful. He doesn't do faithful. He is faithful. Praise God. Praise God that our security, that our eternity, that his love for us is not based on you and I to any degree. It's only based on what Christ did for us. Praise God that he is faithful to keep us forever. Church, beloved brothers and sisters in Christ, may we be faithful. May we respond to this gospel, respond to this sermon in greater faithfulness. May we too be faithful like John to stand for truth and faithful like Christ to do what is righteous and pray often. Both of these men were amazing examples of what it means to be faithful servant. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not the very, is this not the very words we want to hear one day from our good God? When it's all over, when you're done running your race, when you're called off this battlefield, that you would hear God say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Matthew 25, 21. May it be so. Let's pray. Lord, what a joy to, for me to be honored to get to study and preach and bring forth your good word for us today. Um, pray that it's just a faithful work to deliver the word properly, that the real important work is the Holy Spirit's work, is your work on each of these lives to to bring conviction, to bring clarity, to bring inspiration. We would we'd not be done with this right now. We would be moved to, to go to work, to do business with these things, to confess sin, to turn from it, to, to share with others, to invite in accountability, to, to really consider our standing before you. Some might have entered this place today maybe very seasoned in attending church, maybe very knowledgeable of the words in your holy Bible, maybe very long-listed in their resume of good things they've done, but they still are the Lord of their own lives. They still have not died to self to live to Christ. And I pray that today would be the day where you truly give them a full view of their sin before your holy standard and just an amazing view of your grace and love for what Christ did to save them, to take on the penalty of that sin, that they could be forgiven fully and forever, saved, adopted, empowered by the Spirit to live for your righteousness and glory. What an amazing thing. Do your work, Lord, to save many today. If that's a testimony of some, that they would share that with us so we could walk with them in their new faith. We could talk to them about the sharing of that good news and baptism and we just pray for your mighty work this day, this hour, not just here, Disciples Church, but all throughout Bakersfield, California, the United States, and the world. Do your mighty work, Lord. That the faithful would emerge from the doors where the gathering of the saints happened, wherever that is. And we would, we would serve you well in these things and make much of you. 
There is a reality that much of what that means is a hard life, is, is even suffering that you would ordain. We have a clear testimony of that today and in others that we've read. Even when you ordain that, those things, those breakdowns, that, that pain, that we would steward it well, and that our genuine reply to you would be one full of worship. So hear us now as we contemplate this truth, sing to you and surrender our lives. Do your work in us, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.